This is the first episode of Books of War, a history of the Sicilian Mafia. Now, I'm posting this pilot episode for free on the public Ghost Stories for the End of the World podcast feed. But after this, Books of War will be its own entirely separate series, available only on the Ghost Stories Patreon, released in monthly installments. Every so often, I'll make another episode available for free just to remind people about it. But beyond that, if you want to hear future episodes, you'll have to head over to patreon.com forward slash ghost stories for the end and sign up there. Once you are signed up, you'll then be receiving both the paywalled ghost stories episodes and a monthly books of war show for the price of a coffee, as they say, along with other random tidbits that I share there from time to time. So reading lists, show updates, show music, and so on and so forth. That sounds like quite the deal to me. Now, I don't know how long this series will take to complete, but it's safe to say that we are in this for the long haul. And this has been a long time coming, and I'm genuinely excited to begin. So welcome to Books of War, Episode 1, Creation Myths. Novelist Gesualdo Buffalino once said, Sicily is not a homogenous blob of race and customs, but a place where everything is mixed, changing, contradictory, and just as one finds in the most diverse and pluralistic of continents. Now, although the mafia as such emerges in early to mid 19th century, the island's rich history and its unique blend of social and cultural and political influences bears discussion. And the chief reason is because the mafia has grasped Gesualdo Buffalino's um, statement there better than almost anybody. They developed out of and built upon long-standing practices and associations between different parts of Sicilian society. And they've displayed an uncanny ability to evolve with the times. Nothing that the 19th or 20th century was able to throw at it has managed to defeat it. Whether we're talking fascism, communism, revolution, insurrection, or all-out war. And of course, because the mafia is a secret society, by definition, there is no single moment on the historical timeline that we can point to and say, this is where the mafia began. So what we need to do instead is understand how Sicilian culture and politics were shaped by historical forces and how these forces in turn created the conditions for what would become the Mafia. The Italian historian Salvatore Lupo has argued that aside from a couple of loops back to the 18th century, we mostly don't need to go back any further in Sicilian history than when the word mafia first appears in official documentation around 1860 or at the very earliest, 1812. Now, in many respects, 
I wouldn't dare disagree with him because he's an expert and I'm not. However, consider that the mafia has peddled self-serving folk myths about its history ever since the first clans appeared. The Komara and the Andrangata also dabble in this type of propaganda. And I think with this in mind, we'll benefit from some discussion of particular historical moments in Sicily and mainland southern Italy between the time of the Norman Conquest and the French Revolutionary period. And the goal here, it isn't to exhaustively cover the history of Sicily, but rather is to understand how the Mafia viewed Sicilian history and society and what aspects of the past it drew on when it built its creation myths, its internal culture, and how it used this to insinuate itself into the surrounding society during the upheavals of the 19th century. Now, it isn't just mobsters who peddle creation myths about Cosa Nostra. Even some academics and historians who otherwise have no sympathy for the Mafia, were very taken with what used to be a fairly common misconception about the idea of a noble brotherhood of Robin Hood types that turned to the dark side. And in this account, the story of the Mafia is that of a, a tragic fall from grace. And the implication is that something at its core is still redeemable and can even perhaps be repurposed for the common good. And what's also disturbing about this is that as early as the 1860s, Italy had a pretty good idea of how the mafia began, you know, scholars and academics and members of law enforcement. But somehow the mafia and its sympathizers managed to obscure this reality and we'll explore how they did that as this series progresses. But for a long time, the Mafia and its allies successfully convinced many people that it didn't even exist, and that at most, Mafia just referred to a collection of specifically Sicilian cultural norms. Where it was acknowledged, the authorities were stymied by their inability to accept what they were dealing with. Basically, the notion of a masonically influenced secret criminal society that was highly sophisticated in its operational methods clashed completely with the prevailing view of Southern Italians. So what happened instead was that the authorities adopted alternately indifferent and authoritarian attitudes towards Southern Italy. They vacillated between draconian clampdowns and working with mafia clans to co-manage affairs of the developing state. The mafia, therefore, came to function as an instrument of local government. And it was also assumed that as Italy developed, the mafia, whatever the mafia might be, would gradually diminish in influence as southern Italy became civilized. Uh, this was how people really used to talk. And it was based off the assumption that the mafia was born of poverty, that it was a bottom-up phenomenon, and that social progress would eventually dilute and then neutralize it. And no less a luminary than Eric Hobsbawm once even described the mafia as a primitive form of class struggle. And even if we grant him that, 
he was wrong about which class exactly was responsible for the mafia's rise to power and influence. Now, as we go along, we'll get a feel for how successful the mafia was in its effort to obscure and mystify what it was and what it did. In short, though, it was successful enough that during the first century or so of its existence, each new generation of Italians seemed doomed to discover the mafia anew, and they would have to rebuild their understanding of it all over again from scratch. So before we begin properly, I just want to briefly describe the structure of a typical Sicilian mafia family, or um, Koshka. So you'll understand some of the terms that I'll be using, if not necessarily in this episode, then certainly in future entries. Now, bear in mind that mafia families and blood families are very distinct, and it shouldn't be inferred that because somebody's relative is a member of a clan, they are too. So each clan is headed by a capo familia, and he is flanked by an advisor called a consigliere, and the capo familia issues orders through an intermediary called a capo bastone, or an underboss. Now beneath the underboss are several capo decina, or heads of ten, and beneath the capo decina are the soldatos, or the soldiers. Now these guys are the lowest ranking members of the family, or the koshka, or the clan, and they are the ones responsible for carrying out the day-to-day business of extortion, and violence, and murder, and what the American mafia calls earning. Now despite the name capo decina, each crew may have more or less than 10 soldiers at any given time. Orbiting the Koska are associates, and associates can be anything from independently powerful gangsters who are allied with the clan and pay tribute out of respect, or, more often, they are prospective initiates who are trying to prove that they're worthy of joining the family. The capo familias from three or four geographically connected clans are grouped into what are called mandamentos, or district councils. The bosses on the mandamento select which of them will represent the district on the commission, which is the ruling body of Cosa Nostra. Now, Sicilian clans are generally smaller and more numerous than the Italian-American mafia families. There are about 94 Sicilian Cosca spread across 29 mandamenti, and as a result of this increased level of competition, turf wars and violence are more common. So Sicily sits at something of a crossroads, um, strategically speaking. It's the largest Mediterranean island, and it's located at the toe of the Italian boot, and it's separated from Italy by the Strait of Messina, and at its narrowest point, the Strait is just 3.1 kilometers wide. To the northwest are the islands of Sardinia and Corsica, and 100 miles to the southwest is the coast of Tunisia. So Sicily's location, together with its fertile soil and resources, has triggered waves of settlement and conflict and conquest throughout its history. And every culture that settled on the island left something of itself behind, you know. So think of Sicily as the site of a number of inadvertent experiments in cross-cultural pollination. 
And over the centuries, this has fostered a very rich and vibrant and unique heritage. And I suppose people will usually tell you it's reflected most obviously in the architecture of cities like Palermo. Now, after the Greeks and Phoenicians, the Romans ruled Sicily until the western part of the empire collapsed in the 5th century. And here is where some early mafia historians claimed that the the quasi-feudal system that Rome began transitioning to near the end, together with its deeply embedded culture of patronage and political corruption and its military command structure, well, they claimed that this constituted the raw DNA of the mafia. And by implication, the mafia has existed in some form or another for the better part of two millennia. Now, certainly, there are some very broad, very tenuous um, echoes in the relationship between Roman era landowners and central government, but there is no real connection at all. Um, there is no evidence that a mafia organization existed this far back in history. So following the fall of the Roman Empire, the island was ruled by the Vandals, then the Ostrogoths, and then the Byzantine Empire, uh, what had been the eastern half of the Roman Empire. And in 826, the Byzantines lost control of the island to the Aglabad dynasty. Now, the Muslim conquest of Sicily wasn't quick or easy. It took them the better part of a century, in fact, to fully pacify the island. Now, this is from A Brief History of Sicily, which is published by Stanford University. Quote, Things were up in the air in western Sicily till September of 831, when the Arabs captured Palermo. After that, it was clear that the Arabs were there to stay, and over the next 11 years, immigrants from North Africa took over most of the land in the Val di Mazara. From 842, the theatre of war shifted to eastern Sicily. The Arab conquest of the west left many Byzantine fortresses in ruins, and a number of towns were rebuilt in typical Arab style. A small part of Salemi, between the Jesuit College and Via Bastoni, has a very Arabic-looking street plan, which may go back to the 9th century. Immigrants from North Africa, not actually Arabs, but Islamic Berbers from Algeria, continued to move into Western Sicily. By 950, there were probably half a million Muslims living in the Val di Mazara. The area around Salemi and Montipoletto was thoroughly Islamic in the 10th through to the 12th centuries. Now this period, the Emirate of Sicily, was generally quite prosperous. See, the Arabs were gifted engineers and builders. Sicily's population doubled as towns and cities developed across the island. And the Arabs initiated a number of reforms that raised general living standards. Their efforts in education were so successful that people living in Sicily in 870 had a higher general literacy level than people living in Sicily in the 1870s. And the Muslims developed Palermo, which they named Balham, into a major commercial port. And they introduced new building and engineering techniques and manufacturing methods and irrigation styles. Now the Arabs carved up the larger estates and they diversified Sicily's productive base. And they cultivated vast fields of sugarcane and hemp. And they were also the first to mass produce dried pasta. 
and the Arab souks in towns across the island produced high-quality textiles like rope and silk and other goods, which made Sicily a major place of commerce. And this also helped the Arabs establish lucrative trading links with Europe and the Near and Far East. And it's here where Sicily first becomes known as a place where East and West meet. Now, significantly for our story, they were also the ones who brought citrus fruit cultivation to the island. Lemon and orange groves sprang up across Sicily and they became an integral part of the economy. And many centuries later, they would go on to form the base of the early mafia's power. The word mafia is actually theorized to have derived from any of a number of Arabic terms. The name of an Arabic tribe that ruled Palermo for a time was Mafir. The local peasants were apparently so impressed with how this tribe carried themselves and they sought to emulate them. Um, coming to associate the Mafir tribe with chivalry and self-respect and integrity. A few other words the Arabs introduced to the locals, like Mafia, Muafa, and Maha, all describe some form of shelter or protection or refuge. And there are a few more, like Mahyaz and Mahfud, that describe someone who is both an outsider but also very boastful with a very high sense of their own worth. And on the other hand, there are reasons to suspect that this may be overthinking things a little bit. So although Sicily was a classic melting pot, and there are long periods where different cultures lived in a spirit of peace and cooperation, a recurring theme of Sicily's history will be one of ongoing resistance, both in the public and in the private spheres resistance to these waves of occupation and foreign rule. Although the island generally prospered under the Arabs, there were repeated uprisings by rival Muslim factions, uh, Byzantine loyalists and Sicilians who either wanted to govern themselves or were loyal to some faction or another on the mainland. So at this point, the Italian mainland was a patchwork of principalities in the south, the Byzantines held what today is Puglia and Calabria, which is the heel and toe of the boot, respectively. And between those regions was the Principality of Salerno, which switched the legions between the Byzantines and the Carolingians, depending on political expediency. Above this was the Norman Duchy of Amalfi and the Principality of Benevento. The Arabs had made a habit of launching raids into these southern regions when they were strong. But sensing weakness, these regions started to hire mercenary armies, most of them Normans, to return the favour. Eventually, in 1072, the Normans of Melfi fully conquered Sicily and restored Christianity as the island's official religion. Robert Giscard and his brother Roger Bosso of the Anfield family led the conquest and their campaign culminated in the siege of Palermo in 1072 and they captured the sea. And then on Christmas Day of 1130, um, Roger's son, uh, Roger II, was made king of Sicily by Pope Anacletus II as a, a reward for backing Anacletus's successful bid to become Pope. And this marked the founding 
of the kingdom of Sicily. And the new state took on a much more feudalistic system as a result. And at its height, the kingdom encompassed what had been the county of Apulia and Calabria, the duchy of Amalfi, and of course, Sicily. On a map, this would cover almost the entire southern half of modern Italy. And at one point, the kingdom also extended to the Maltese, Archipelago, and Ifriqia, which today would cover Tunisia and sections of Algeria and Libya. But of course, the problem with governing under an ideology of absolute monarchy is that the fate of your society depends on a dice roll. So if you get a good king or two, as Sicily did, uh, in Roger the first and Roger the second, then you know you flourish, and there's generally peace and progress. So it's beneficial in that scenario to centralize the kingdom because the guy at the top is making wise appointments and good decisions. But if you get a bad role and a weak ruler, then everything starts to fall apart. And so it went in Sicily uh, with a series of very mediocre kings after Roger the second's death. Now, regional barons in Sicily started to chafe under this succession of weak leaders, and they increasingly brutalized their subjects and conspired against the throne. And they effectively triggered a civil conflict with the Arab and Jewish populations by imposing these incredibly discriminatory, harsh taxes on them and engaging in the odd bout of mass murder and intermittent attempts at what we today call ethnic cleansing. Now, there was lots of political intrigue and conspiracy during this time, but what we need to know for our purposes is that Sicily entered a period of decline and a template was set for a continual push and pull between the center and the regional authorities. And for a while, this decline seemed terminal, but it was arrested when Frederick II ascended to the throne in 1198. And once he was declared of age in 1208, he quickly established himself as a formidable strategist and a, a highly cultured ruler. And he's still admired, not just in Sicily, but across Europe. Um, as David de Taylor writes, quote, he was a man of extraordinary culture, energy, and ability, called by a contemporary chronicler, Stupor Mundi, the astonishment of the world. By Nietzsche, he was called the first European, and by many historians, the first modern ruler. Frederic established in Sicily and southern Italy something very much like a modern, centrally governed kingdom with an efficient bureaucracy. Now, like Roger I and Roger II, he implemented some remarkably liberal reforms for his time, and he restored Sicily's place as a great center of science and poetry and art. And in fact, the poetry that was produced under his patronage contributed to the creation of Sicilian as a language. Now, he could speak several languages himself, and he sought to draw a connection between his reign and the Roman rulers of antiquity. And his appointments helped to consolidate his power and partially restored the kind of multi-ethnic, multi-faith template of the early years of the kingdom. And he was more or less openly skeptical of religion. And this brought him into conflict with the Pope, who was already threatened by Frederic's territorial claims to the north and the kingdom of Sicily to the south. The Pope, in fact, excommunicated him three times and eventually declared him the Antichrist. 
So I'm tempted, in case you can't tell, I am very tempted to just go off at length about Frederick here because he is such an interesting historical figure, but, you know, we have an appointment with the mafia to keep. So basically, although Sicily once again prospered under Frederick, the same problem of absolute monarchy meant that once he died, the kingdom entered another period of decline. And for all his political sophistication, Frederick had unwisely antagonized the papal states and their allies, and he'd created crises that his successors would struggle to deal with. And then the Pope declared that his fellow Frenchman, Charles of Anjou, was the rightful king of Sicily. And when Frederick's son, uh, Manfred I, who by all accounts was quite a good king, died in battle in 1267, Sicily passed into French hands. And King Charles chose to rule from Naples instead of Palermo. And this would become a recurring theme in the coming centuries, with Sicily frequently reduced to provincial status by a succession of indifferent rulers. And in turn, this would foster a spirit of resistance among Sicilians. But naturally, because this is Sicily, I should point out that the relationship between Sicilians and the rulers of the Kingdom of Sicily was complex and very nuanced, and it was in constant flux throughout the centuries. By far the most common account of how the Mafia began that I used to encounter when I was a kid, you know, reading true crime books and the like. Well, this account concerned the Sicilian Vespers. Now, the Sicilian Vespers was a real rebellion, and it was a successful one against the rule of King Charles in 1282. And there are a few accounts of what triggered the uprising, and they all share a lot of very common Sicilian folkloric themes, you know, honor, vendetta, secret conspiracies, and solidarity amongst the downtrodden against a powerful outside enemy. Vespers, just in case you were wondering, are prayers made at sunset. And on March the 30th, 1282, people gathered at Palermo's Church of the Holy Spirit. And just as the service was beginning, a group of French troops turned up and started to harass local women in the congregation. And one woman's husband pulled a dagger and slit a soldier's throat. And when the other French soldiers tried to grab the killer, the congregation massacred them. Now, these are the basic facts of what is known. And over the years, various embellishments were added to this incident, none more so than by the mafia. As the congregation was fighting the troops, the bells marking the start of Vespers began to ring, and people ran from the church to spread the word that an uprising had begun. Now, in some versions... The bells were rung as a signal to bands of rebel fighters in the surrounding hills to descend on Palermo and lead the insurrection. And estimates have it that about 13,000 French people were killed during the following weeks in Sicily. Now those rebel bands that I mentioned, well, they're claimed by gangsters and bad historians. They are claimed to have been the first mafia clans. And over time, this story goes, they were corrupted by their new power and they turned to crime, you know, forgetting their original noble mission. Now, as history, this account of the mafia's origin is terrible and inaccurate. But as mafia folk myth, I find it very, very interesting because 
we have the raw ingredients of blood for blood vengeance, defending the honor of women, killing in service of a, a higher ideal and, you know, um, people banding together in secret against a powerful outside enemy. And crucially, inversions where some conspiracy is implied between the bandits in the hills and the citizens in the church, we have the mafia portraying itself not just as welcome in Sicilian life, but as a crucial and indispensable cornerstone of it, as guardians of justice and security. Now, this is captivating as it is implausible, but that's not to say that this propaganda didn't work up to a certain point. By 1479, the Spanish had assumed full control of Sicily. Now, during this period, there was again relative degree of prosperity and peace. Uh, the first university, for example, in Sicily was built in Catania in 1434. And for the first time, a sense of a Sicilian identity began to solidify. But very little of the wealth that was generated by a boom in crop yields and exports spread outside elite circles and corruption kind of became endemic. And this redounded to the benefit of landowners. See, during Spanish rule, kings rarely visited the island and administration was largely handled by viceroys who used patronage and clientelism networks to cement their positions. The monarchy issued policy from Madrid and spheres of influence between the Spanish court and the viceroys were never clearly defined. And additionally, the baronage expanded their estates or established new ones, often without asking permission. And this led to local authority becoming more concentrated in their hands. The Spanish prosecution of the Inquisition, the economic and political corruption, and the frequent brutality and ruthless treatment of peasants and dissidents by the landowners all fed distrust of authority amongst the working poor of the island. The Spanish worked to establish a Catholic monoculture in Sicily as well, and in 1492, Judaism was made illegal in all Spanish territories. Religious authorities from this point onwards upped the amount of viciously anti-Semitic rhetoric that they included in their sermons, and this eventually led to Sicilian Jews being first violently persecuted and then eventually driven off the island. And the church and the viceroys worked together and in opposition to each other during the Inquisition, you know, depending on uh, political expediency. So rich families could buy favours from inquisitors, such as having rivals denounced as heretics, or they could pay their way out of an accusation levelled against themselves. And this served to further undermine the legitimacy of the ruling authorities. Now, Sicily's parliament also fought against the Inquisition and they ended up funding militias to raid Inquisition buildings and even drove them off the island for a number of years. And the Spanish, well, they began to hold these elaborate, lavish festivals for Catholic holidays, um, trying to appeal to Sicilians' faith as a way to make them submit to Spanish rule. And there was heavy pressure on Sicilians to partake. And the way that Sicilians reacted to this speaks to this complex and ambiguous relationship they had with ruling foreign powers. And while publicly many of them seemed happy 
to go along with the pageantry and ritualism of the uh, the Spanish festivals. Privately, many of them rebelled, and they rebelled in a very intriguing way. In fact, their rebellion, it took the form of what's been termed occult resistance. See, in some instances, this was merely a continuation of Sicily's long-standing tradition of blending Catholic theology with pre-existing folk culture. Other accounts, and there are hundreds of them, describe practices that would have been outright heresy in the eyes of the church, um, as James McKay again explains. The more one looks beyond the Sicilians' most theatrical displays of devotion, the less straightforwardly obedient the population seems to have been. Catholicism may have become the dominant symbolic vocabulary on the island, but its local permutations were far less orthodox than the political rulers might have wished. When venerating their patron saint, San Vito, for example, the residents of Mazara del Vallo continued to use bay leaves to ward off evil spirits, in accordance with ancient pagan exorcist practices. When the inquisitors questioned this custom, the local clergy simply attached red ribbons to the performers to render the activity Catholic. This was fairly a typical strategy across the island and beyond the region. In Sicily, however, many residents took things a step further. Some openly worshipped polytheistic deities. Each spring, for example, Villagers in the northeastern villages of the Nebrodi Mountains would flock to the megaliths of Ardgimusco, a series of rocks known as the Sicilian Stonehenge, to conduct fertility rituals, calling on fairies and spirits to protect prospective pregnancies. To mark the festival of St. John the Baptist on the summer solstice, hundreds of islanders would pay homage to the saint by dancing, drinking, and engaging in orgiastic practices in what was, presumably, a continuation of the festivals to Bacchus and Dionysus. In private, away from the eyes of religious authorities, many Sicilians practiced magic rituals. Now, given the intimate nature of this activity, it's hard to ascertain precisely how widespread various phenomena have been over time. Later anthropological surveys conducted in southern Italy, though, suggest that at least some of the local population would have consumed menstrual blood or urine in order to obtain what they believed would be superhuman powers. Another common praxis was to distort prayers or hijack biblical verses to add chants or incantations that could help the subject seduce a lover or curse a rival. We know that peasants across the Sicilian countryside shared tales about the Doni de Fora, ghostly figures inspired the, by the Moroccan figure of the Nun, which apparently haunted small villages, punishing disorderly families, and that, in the cities, High magic like divination was widespread. In 17th century Palermo, a woman named Antonina Lombardo offered to read her clients' futures by creating patterns of fava beans, cereals, and other foodstuffs. A gentleman, Santo Gasparo, claimed that he could interpret the sounds of animals, particularly the whine of pigs, to diagnose the health of his customers' souls. Anyone wishing to purchase a magical object could have headed to Balaro Market which obtained a particular reputation for its stockpiles of amulets and jewellery that were commonly used in the practice of necromancy. So in addition to this occult resistance and lacking the means to obtain 
justice from the Spanish authorities. Sicilian folklore stepped in and supplied tales of heroes and, and secret groups who fought for the poor and punished the powerful. Now the Beati Pauli are one of the most enduring legends from the time. And most scholars now agree that they were a myth, but the description of men in black cloaks meeting after dark to hear complaints about corrupt nobles and cruel administrators from the community, hold trials, you know, issue verdicts, and even enact sentences ranging from beatings to death has inevitably led some to draw parallels between it and the mafia. In fact, Leonardo Sciasca um, was one of those people. Now, the mafia certainly drew on tales of the Beati Pauli, um, consciously inviting the connection, you could say. And Umberto Eco supplied quite a poignant insight into the supposed parallels between the mafia and the Beati Pauli. Now, he highlighted how the fictional nature of the legend, well, like the mafia, it offers a purely illusory ideal of justice. But once this is stripped away, what's left instead is a state within a state that only subjects people to a different form of domination and exploitation. And the mafia did exploit not just this tradition of resistance in Sicilian society, but it also adeptly manipulated the cultural fabric and it cloaked itself in folklore and it self-consciously cultivated an image of itself as the only reliable instrument of justice and protection in a world of corruption. So probably the most fantastical and over-the-top story of how the mafia began, isn't usually told by Cosa Nostra, funnily enough, but by the Andrangheta in Calabria. And in fact, after the chaos and bloodshed of the 1980s, nobody inside or outside of the Sicilian mafia was much in the mood for mythology and rustic chivalry. You know, too many bodies had piled up, too many bombs had gone off. And it's fairly rare these days that you'll even find a mafia boss who still talks about noble guilds from the Middle Ages or rustic chivalry, um, which we'll be exploring that concept at length in a, a future episode. But the Andrangheta, nowadays, they are the most powerful of Italy's three main mafia groups. Well, they still tell this story to new recruits. And my hunch is that's because they've always tended to hew most closely to the weird sense of mysticism that the organizations adopted in the early years. Now, the Andrangheta story goes that in the 15th century, and sometimes you'll see it described as the 16th, sometimes the 17th, but 
Three Spanish knights killed a nobleman who'd raped their sister, and the knights were called Oso, Mastroso, and Casanoso. And they were members of a secret Spanish society called the Garduna. The Garduna, depending on who you talk to, was either another band of honorable thieves or it was a clandestine arm of the Spanish Inquisition. And after killing the nobleman, the three brothers sailed for Favignana, but a storm left them shipwrecked and the Spanish authorities caught up to them and imprisoned them. And after serving 30 years, the brothers emerged armed from the cells with dark wisdom and arcane rituals. Also founded Cosa Nostra in Sicily, Mastroso created the Andrangata in Calabria, and Casagnoso created the Camorra in Naples. I hope what you're getting a feel for is how, when building its creation myths, the Mafia was fully cognizant of its place in Sicilian history, and it would draw on the tapestry of it. They'd use bits and pieces, you know, of Sicilian folklore, and they'd mix it with examples of Sicilian resistance, and they would connect themselves this way to Sicilian history and create an identity and an ideology that was designed to ensure compliance and submission, not just internally, but in the territories that it ruled as well. Now, it might make us uncomfortable to think that an organized crime outfit has something approximating an ideology, but Cosa Nostra does have very real politics. Mafiosi have a lot of stock invested in this concept of honor that you'll hear them talk about a lot. They refer to the organization as the honored society, and much of their time is spent obsessing over and manipulating the rules and procedures that govern the code of honor. And their image as men of honor, protecting the weak from abuse by the powerful, is evidence of how powerful the mafia's internal propaganda machine is. Now, we will be discussing the initiation ceremony at length a little bit later, but it's worth mentioning here that mobsters throughout the decades have mentioned that the head of the clan will usually explain to initiates that this house, by which they mean the, the mafia clan, is here to protect the weak from the strong. And the power of this manufactured aura of tradition cannot be underestimated. It's a superb social bonding mechanism. Now, Totorina, the Colleon boss who oversaw the mafia's war on the Italian state in the 1980s, he was said to live by a code of honor that he described as ancient and morally correct. And by the time of his arrest, he was responsible for hundreds of deaths across Italy. But he refused to look informants in the eye in court because he said they had betrayed the, the code of honor. Tommaso Buscetta, the, the mafia supergrass nicknamed the boss of two worlds because of his power and influence either side of the Atlantic. Well, he was a very sophisticated and very intellectually curious gangster, but nevertheless, even he was under the impression that the mafia began as an ancient guild of chivalrous bandits who robbed the rich and gave to the poor. How much, you know, these guys really believe in this code and in 
their version of history is, of course, it's debatable. But what's more important is the legitimizing function that it served in Sicilian society. I think I once described the tale of the three knights as a gangster fairy tale, and I'd like to repeat that once again, because it it has all the hallmarks of epic mafia folk myth. You have an operatic blood vendetta, corrupt authority, and wild self-aggrandizement. But it also contains a very, very small kernel of truth, which offers us a neat segue here. You see, the part about the prison is quite meaningful in hindsight because whether intentional or not, it alludes to a historical fact. And that is that by the early 19th century, a strange new criminal phenomenon was spreading through Southern Italy's brutal prison system. Now, already these new gangs were powerful and relatively sophisticated. And members of this group were called camaristi. The murkiness of the mafia's origins and the complexity of the politics and the economics of the time enabled these more simplistic folkloric explanations to flourish. Believing them was easier than confronting the the very real social problems that created the mafia. So an angst-ridden debate would subsequently surround the phenomenon of the mafia during its first century. And the question everybody asking seemed simple enough. And the question was, what is the mafia? But the answers generally were unsatisfying. And in some cases they were outright insulting. And in other cases, all they did was serve to add additional confusion to the conversation. Now, these obfuscations and misconceptions persisted well into the 20th century. And even people like Leonardo Siasca, who was a remarkable writer and chronicler of the mafia and Sicilian society, he considered mafia both a criminal organization or collection of criminal organizations and a peculiarly Sicilian way of looking at the world, a kind of stubborn, reckless form of resistance to authority and an innate tendency towards radical assertions of individuality in the face of bullying and oppression. Now, to his way of thinking, the mafia was therefore an ineradicable part of the Sicilian identity. And he described how he felt a fracture in his soul when he criticized the mafia because he felt as if he was rejecting some essential part of himself. Now, the mafia's friends in politics helped bed in this kind of thinking right from the beginning. And they would describe mafia characteristics as the same kind of distaste for bullying and exploitation that could be found in societies all over the world. In their telling, anybody who was brave and honorable and carried themselves with pride could be a mafiosi. And what vexed so many sociologists in the 19th century was how the Sicilian mafia contradicted everything they thought they knew about crime and its social causes. The thinking was that as society developed, crime would inevitably recede as an issue. And on top of that, you have to remember that 
a lot of social scientists at the time had very strange ideas about crime as a social phenomenon. It was normal for them to exhibit prisoners at universities and in scientific roadshows and point out how big ears or a broad forehead or an overbite made someone more prone to be a thief or a rapist or a drunk. And to them, Southern Italians were innately prone to criminality because they were simple peasants who lived by obscure and sinister codes of honor from rural areas. Cosa Nostra in particular was from the start primarily a bourgeois phenomenon. And we're going to get into why and how that could be a little bit later. But make no mistake, they were intimately connected to the wealthy, educated upper classes and aristocracy of Sicily and southern Italy more broadly. You could sometimes even find judges and doctors and lawyers living a double life as members of the mafia. And there were also plenty of aristocrats who would stroll arm in arm with capo familias around the local piazzas of Palermo. But the bigoted view that many Northern Italians had as Southerners infected academic study of the Mafia phenomenon for decades. So the Mafia isn't ancient, and as the anti-Mafia resistance has shown, it isn't an innate part of the Sicilian identity either. But the very fact that this kind of mystification poisoned discourse around Costa Nostra for so long should be our first clue as to how sophisticated and far-reaching its influence was right from the very beginning. I'm not an expert, like I said, so what I'm going to try to do is give you what the scholars and historians that I've read generally agree are the most common reasons for why the Mafia developed and why it makes sense that it took the form that it did. However, while we've established that Cosa Nostra is a relatively modern organization. And that is to say that the mafia method as such appears in the years leading up to the birth of the Italian state and that the mafia is more or less fully formed by the time it comes to broader public awareness in the 1860s. Well, we should still be aware that the mafia partly grew out of and built on long-standing traditions of patronage and corruption and violence that were already part of Sicilian society. Now the word mafia itself, and initially it was sometimes spelled with two Fs, the word first appeared in historical records as a description of a specifically criminal organization in the early 1860s. There's a Sicilian ethnologist called Giuseppe Pietri, who was born in 1841, and he described how all through his childhood, the word mafia and the word mafiosi, they were commonly used to describe especially honorable or popular or brave or creative or altruistic men in the local community in Palermo. So you could imagine that cool would probably be the closest modern equivalent in the English-speaking world. But there was a popular 1863 play called I Mafiosi della Vicaria, which popularized the term and associated it with criminals and secret sex. Now, the play depicts a man of honor who runs a gang inside Palermo's prison. And the playwright, uh, Giuseppe Risotto, modeled the character on a real-life Camaro capo that he was friendly with. 
The gang in the play has ranks, it has an initiation ceremony, and the characters talk at length about the importance of respect and honor and humility. Uh, this this last bit, humility, umilta, is where we think now the concept of omerta might have come from. The idea of um, a code of silence that governs a community and stops them speaking to outsiders or law enforcement. The concept goes back further than the play, though. Don't, don't let me give you the wrong impression there. Uh, the boss in the play is portrayed as fair and reasonable and wise and protective. And you can think of this as the basic cultural archetype of the mafiosi that we know today. You know, we saw it in uh, films like The Godfather. Now, to briefly loop back a little bit further, Sicily fell under the rule of the Neapolitan Bourbons in 1743. And the Bourbons were a cadet branch of the Habsburgs, you know, the Spanish ruling family. And as James Fentress says, quote, On paper, it seemed a sensible arrangement. The two regions, Naples and Sicily, were culturally and economically similar. The aristocracy of each was linked to the other by ties of kinship and marriage. The Neapolitans, at least, were well satisfied. Although 18th century Neapolitan political life was dominated by court intrigues and by legal and dynastic squabbles, the earlier Spanish viceroys in Naples had been able to curb somewhat the power of the kingdom's fractious nobility, creating a class of administrators loyal to the crown. This class was delighted when Naples became the capital of an independent kingdom. They were especially pleased that, with the addition of Sicily, the kingdom became an empire, just as it had been under the medieval kings, and had remained until the Sicilians had thrown them out after the Vespers Uprising in 1282. So by 1781, these new viceroys were imploring the Neapolitan Bourbons to do something about the state of public administration in Sicily. And it's remarkable to think really how little changed in the centuries leading up to the Bourbon regime and in the century or so uh, after they came to power. See, the viceroys described how central authority on the island was dangerously weak. They said that fiscal policy was in a shambles and that the land barons had built considerable power bases for themselves that rivaled the power of the state. And as a result, Taxes went uncollected and corruption was an everyday part of life. Now, under the feudal system, peasants were obligated to work on the land owned by the ruling class in return for, you know, um, a percentage of the food or the crops that they produced. And in return, the nobility um, was supposed to extend their protection to the peasants from uh, thieves and bandits and, you know, the the companies at arms of neighbouring lords and barons. Feudalism was so deeply embedded in Sicilian society that even after its abolition in 1812, many customs from the era were still practised. Uh, this included things like addressing men of status as Don, and subordinates still being expected to bow and kiss the hand of nobles and barons. The peasants were also granted certain rights under the landowners. Um, this included things like having land where they could hunt or raise livestock, 
and they could also expect to have whatever grain was left over from harvests. All of these agreements were sort of encoded in the use of written charters. But as the viceroys discovered, the landowners would usually encroach on these rights and it became kind of a rule of life in this period that the landowners didn't really have to obey the written charters. Now, because poverty was so widespread and Sicily's difficult geography and very poor infrastructure uh, made it hard for the state to actually impose order, these nobles were free to run their fiefdoms as they saw fit. Uh, their, their harsh treatment of the peasantry and the absurdly unequal distribution of the profits from harvests meant that banditry became endemic to the countryside. And then in the 17th and 18th centuries, a new trend developed with the landowners and nobility where they would increasingly prefer to spend their time in the cities, particularly Palermo, because that's where political and economic power was concentrated. So what they started to do was lease their rural holdings to the Gabalotti. Now the Gabalotti were ferocious, violent entrepreneurs who supervised armed militias that began to guard the feudal estates for absentee landowners in return for a discount on the cost of the lease. And the Gabalotti in turn would sublet the nobles' land to peasants at a premium or else force the peasants to work the land for effectively nothing. And they also sought to extract as much profit as possible from all business conducted in what they considered to be their territory. And generally, their territory corresponded to the baronial estates that they leased. They would charge high rental fees for the use of tools, they would impose taxes on people transporting crops or cattle or other goods across their land, and they dealt out staggering violence to people who couldn't or wouldn't pay these taxes. And they didn't hesitate to commit murder as well during the course of their business. And they had very little to fear from the authorities because the authorities often saw them and their militias as a necessary tool of law and order in the violent Sicilian interior. In time, the Gabalotti began to tax the activities of the local brigands and smugglers. And eventually, the Gabalotti and the bandits started to work together to extort landowners, or the landowners would in fact work with them to extort rivals. So I'll give you an example of how this worked in practice. Suppose that you are a noble and I am a, a Gabalotti and I lease your land and I rent it to a group of peasants who grow wheat. Or, you know, I might force them to work the land for maybe half a loaf of bread a day. Now you get a percentage of whatever my laborers can grow and sell. Now what I could do in this situation is suggest that crime in the local area is putting laborers and crop yields at risk and tell you that I need some more money to hire some more guards. And if you refuse, I could have my guys or the local crew of bandits that I'm friendly with. I could have them stage a raid on your estate. I could have them beat up or even kill some of the, the peasants. And once you pay up, I could then offer to recover any stolen goods for a finder's fee, anything that my crew of bandits looted from your manor house. Now, this is a basic protection racket, and it is the core business of Cosa Nostra right up to the present day. Alternatively, though, if you're the kind of noble who is already quite corrupt, 
you might actually contract me to go and trash a rival's lemon grove or burglarize his house to humiliate him or sometimes even kill him um, for you as part of a vendetta. Now, many of the nobles actively colluded with the bandits and the gabalotti alike, and they did as much as anyone to corrupt Sicily's economy and its infrastructure. And they would come to be valuable protectors of the mafiosi. And again, from Fentress, quote, No one could doubt where the real power in 18th century Sicily lay. The dominion of the barons had spilled over the confines of their own estates to include neighboring towns and villages with their communal lands. Barons held sway over freeholders and tenants in these areas, and individuals came under their control and influence whether they lived on feudal or on communal land, and whether they were tenants or freeholders. The barons also dominated the Sicilian courts, making it nearly impossible for towns or individuals to obtain judgments against them for encroachments and usurpations, or, if such judgments were obtained, to do much about enforcing them. The barons could hardly have conducted their struggles without local allies, and it was in Palermo, where most barons kept houses, that the supporters and clients of baronial rule were naturally found. It was not only the nobility and church that enjoyed privileges and exemptions. The Palermo Foro had amassed their own system of privileges and exemptions. The Maestranzi, or artisan guilds in Palermo, enjoyed legal protection as well. They could set prices and limit membership to their associations. They even had the right to bear arms and to hunt in the area around Palermo. They also acted as a local police force and civic guard, a tradition that had considerable importance in shaping the course of Palermo rebellions. Now these companies at arms also came to play a crucial role in the emerging economy. And by way of summary, this is how Salvatore Lupo describes it. Quote, a perverse dynamic developed between the company's arms, prominent citizens, and local criminals. This dynamic ensured the landowners and property holders that their assets would remain intact and their lands untroubled through a very specific type of control exerted by the company's arms over the local criminals. The practice of negotiation between victim and robber allowed the victim to regain some of his possessions and it permitted the criminal to escape punishment and keep part of the loop the captain of the company would in turn receive a prize for his role as a broker named by the seller and the purchaser in a public transaction. And as noted, the Gabalotti functioned as a kind of broker in these situations as well. And although this arrangement between the company's arms, corrupt entrepreneurs and landowners, and the Gabalotti wasn't yet the mafia, the nucleus of the mafia and its methods is found here. So it should be mentioned here that the Bourbons did actually make some efforts to implement reforms in Sicily that might benefit the working poor. Some of them were of that strand of the aristocracy, which I suppose we'd call it noblesse oblige. They feel somehow uh, obligated to try and ease the lot of the common man, you know. But their efforts usually founded on the indifference of Sicily's ruling elite. Uh, who were turning out to be a nightmare for the Bourbons to deal with. And of course, then came the French Revolution and the rapid spread of radical politics across the continent. And one of the major vehicles for radical sentiment during this time 
were Masonic lodges and secret revolutionary sects that based their organizational structure on Masonic societies. One of these sects was called the Carboneri, and it was Italian. Internally, they were divided between pro and anti-French revolutionaries, but they all saw a unified liberal Republican Italian state. Freemasonry was popular with many prominent Republicans and liberals. And in fact, the great patriotic hero, uh, Giuseppe Garibaldi, he was himself a Freemason, as were a number of the leaders of the revolutionary gangs that would play a role in the Sicilian revolts of 1848 and 1866. In 1806, Napoleon conquered Naples and King Frederick I fled to Palermo, where he lived under the protection of the British. And this marked the first time in 200 years that a king of the two Sicilies had actually lived in Palermo. As the Napoleonic Wars raged, Britain occupied Sicily and used it as a base of operations, and their navy made it impossible for Napoleon to invade the island. And then after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, Ferdinand returned to Italy and quickly moved to shore up his power. In 1816, although he'd accepted the Sicilian constitution, he suddenly abolished it and he proclaimed himself the king of the two Sicilies again. It should come as no surprise really that asking for the odd reform here and there, the odd tweak to the way that things were done, well that was one thing. But the kind of radical Republican politics that a lot of these liberals and people inspired by the French Revolution were pushing, that was completely non-negotiable. As far as the Bourbon regime was concerned, they'd had a taste of what revolution looked like and they had no interest in entertaining any further notions of a huge overhaul in the way that society was governed. The Bourbon regime, newly restored, made the suppression of radical political activity, one of its priorities. As the Bourbon regime had moved to suppress political activity, the Carbonari revolutionaries wound up doing time in the brutal prison system alongside Camoristi. And by the early 19th century, these prison Camoristi were essentially co-managing the prisons with the guards and the wardens, and they ruthlessly taxed and extorted non-Camoristi prisoners. And the most common tax was the one that every prisoner had to pay for the patch of ground that they slept on. Now this space on the ground was called a pizzo, and even today the mafia still uses the term to refer to protection payments. The prison camoristi held regular consultations with other members of the organization, and they would discuss business, resolve disputes, and issue death sentences. And this embryonic, primitive form of statesmanship, when you scale it up to society at large, this is what would lead the Mafia to be described as a shadow state in the decades ahead. Now the imprisoned radicals, you know, the Carbonari, they had the money to buy protection from the Camaristi, and they were also intrigued by the Camorra's sheer amount of influence among the urban poor back in Naples. And if there was going to be a revolution to the Carbonari, it made sense to have the Camaristi on side. Now it's theorized that the Carbonari decided to initiate the Camaristi into their cells as a way of flattering them and bringing them on board the revolutionary project. And similarly, the landowners and other prominent citizens that we mentioned, the ones who sometimes colluded with the proto-mafia, some of them themselves had uh, liberal politics of the time 
you know, and were in turn members of Masonic lodges. They may have also introduced Masonism to the gangs that they were working with as a way to reward them and keep them in line. Although that's quite speculative, but it's possible. Now, the prison Camoristi were very taken with the idea of a sworn secret society, and they started to apply the same organizational methods to the gangs that they were running. And it wasn't only Neapolitan criminals who joined the Carbonari. There were a number of Sicilian uh, cells. Uh, in fact, one was discovered in 1819 in Sicily. And one small but significant trace of the influence of Masonic guilds and the Cabanari on the Mafia's initiation ritual can be seen in this police report on the Sicilian Cabanari group. Quote, The sect of the Cabanari consists in the union of a number of individuals who, calling one another good cousins, oblige themselves under oath not to reveal the secret, to respect the rules, to help one another in case of need, and all this under pain of being cut into pieces and incinerated in a furnace. This sect, like all others that are covered by a mystery, has its grades, the first of which is called Apprentice, the second is Master, the third is called the First Symbolic, and the fourth, the Lofty Light. Now the documents reference to traitors being cut into pieces and incinerated in a furnace is quite interesting because it echoes the Mafia initiation ceremony where the new recruits uh, have their fingers cut and they smear the blood on the image of a saint. And then as the image burns, they hold it in their hands and rub their hands together and recite an oath of loyalty where they say some variation of, may I burn in hell if I betray my friends. And it's quite interesting to think that these mafia groups took what was a secular oath of loyalty and blended it with their own tradition of Catholic mysticism. In, in Sicily, where Uccidane prison has been a long-standing university of crime, Sicilian Carbonari, Camoristi, and bandits underwent a similar process of cultural exchange. And it's not that these proto-mafiosi necessarily had high-flown political ideals, but they were concerned with making sure that their positions would be secure, no matter what the future held for Sicily. The connections then that they managed to forge through these groups with the middle and upper class radicals of Italy further helped the early mafia acquire influence and protection. And right up to the present day, Sicilian mobsters still join Masonic guilds as a way to unlock access to new business opportunities and potential friends in elite spheres of politics and the legal system. And beyond the broader political situation, the story of the Carbonari and its influence on the Mafia helps us understand why it made sense for the Mafia to be a secret society from its inception. Now, by the time the new state of Italy realized that it had a serious problem with a mysterious sect of criminals in Sicily, the initiation ritual was a well-established part of the Mafia method. And as well as creating an illusion of ancient mystical tradition, the menacing overtones of it serve as a, a useful disciplining mechanism. It helps to awe new, young, temperamental members. And beyond that, it provides an important symbolic function as well. Uh, prospects are repeatedly told that they are nothing mixed with nil in the time leading up to being made. 
The function then is to symbolize a recruit's death as an ordinary citizen and their rebirth as a man of honor. And becoming a member of a clan entails assuming a whole new identity, a new set of values and a specific way of seeing the world. The mafiosi consider themselves to be not just separate and above ordinary civilians, but they also consider there is a line between themselves and ordinary criminals as well. The initiation is what helps reinforce this notion. Now, the Camoristi and Sicilian mafiosi from this early period would frequently speak in elusive, coded language. Uh, They would identify one another by having very strange, surreal conversations about toothache and astrology to denote which families they belong to and how long they've been members. Um, I will put an example of this kind of dialogue up on the Patreon. However, I don't want to give you the impression that the initiation ceremony is as venerated as it might seem from this. And in episodes to come, we will see how Cosa Nostra has frequently initiated people just to buy their silence or to save them the trouble of paying the people off or killing them. Now we'll loop back again to Sicily's time under British occupation, because one of the most under-discussed parts of the Mafia's history is the role that the British played in it. Lord William Bentnick assumed the command of British troops in Sicily in 1806. Now, Bentnick was a Whig. He was a liberal reformer, and he very much believed in the civilizing mission of the empire. He took his appointment to Sicily as an opportunity to implement radical political reform, and he tried to create a blueprint for a constitutional government that would curtail the power of the monarchy. The thing is, though, that Bentnick completely failed to reckon with Sicily's problems. We've already described them at length, so we don't need to rehash them here. But the most significant effect of his reforms was the abolition of feudalism in 1812. Now, Bentnick here had effectively created a completely untethered free market capitalist economy without a transition plan or any intention of staying on in Sicily to oversee its implementation. And in fact, he was reprimanded by London because they had never intended Sicily or Italy to be the site of some grand civic experiment. They had in fact been planning to sell most of the country to the Austrians after they dealt with Napoleon. And crucially, between 1812 and 1860, the number of large landowners in Sicily increased from 2,000 to 20,000. And additionally, although the peasantry was freed from its feudal obligations, so were the barons and the landowners, which meant that while they did fine selling off their land, the peasants were excluded from most forms of land ownership because they just didn't have the capital to buy any. And this meant that poverty shot up in Sicily. And after the Bourbon Restoration of 1816, the Bourbon regime implemented a virtual police state that brutally suppressed dissent in Sicily. But the irony is that they were unwittingly accelerating the merger of revolutionary politics and organized crime in Sicily. And this is from Fentress again. Upon its restoration, the Neapolitan government had arrested a number of Neapolitan revolutionaries, sectarians, and political malcontents. Wishing to keep them as far away from the capital as possible, they transported them to Sicilian prisons. As a result, 
the police soon discovered that a vendita of the Carboneria had been founded in Palermo's central prison, the Vicaria, with branches in the fortress of Castellamare, as well as the prisons in Trapani and the island of Favignana. That kind of speaks to what we'd already discussed, but the upshot is that these early proto-mafiosi, when they were released from prison, they were now armed with newly acquired contacts in the middle and upper classes, and they were also inspired by the political and economic potential of a revolution. And sure enough, tales of a new sect of thieves based mainly in Western Sicily, and one that performed strange rituals and had powerful friends, those tales began to spread across the island. And as John Dickey describes it, quote, By the 1830s, there were already signs of which criminal business model would eventually emerge victorious. In Naples, the members of patriotic sects made a covenant with the street toughs of the Camorra. But in lawless Sicily, scattered documentary records tell us that the revolutionary sects themselves sometimes turned to crime. One official report from 1830 tells of a charcoal burner sect that was muscling its way into local government contracts. In 1838, a Bourbon investigating magistrate sent a report from Trapani with news of what he called unions or brotherhoods, sects of a kind. These unions formed what he called little governments within the government. They were an ongoing conspiracy against the efficient administration of state business. And then meanwhile, with the abolition of feudalism and an abrupt pivot into free market capitalism in Sicily, the best and the brightest of the Gabalotti, the bandits, the landowners, and what had until then been referred to as the Camoristi, along with the private militias who had previously worked as guards on the great estates, and the companies at arms as well, took this as an opportunity to carve out a niche for themselves in the new economy. These groups began to organize themselves into the first mafia clans, and owing to the long-standing connections they built with each other and with members of the Sicilian ruling elite, as well as the police, the magistrates, and the nobility, the early mafia was able to very comfortably infiltrate the economy and exert territorial control more efficiently and ruthlessly than the legitimate state. The clans taxed all forms of economic activity, legal or illegal, on their territories, and they used networks of informers and police spies to enforce the code of omerta, the code of silence. These men, as Diego Gambetta put it, were entrepreneurs in violence. Because capitalism requires secure investment to function, and a breakdown in law and order puts that at risk, this new entrepreneurial class began to sell violence as a service. The mafiosi, therefore, lived or died by his ability to judge how much violence to apply to a given situation and how credible his threats of violence were to the people that he was making them to. Effectively, the law in Sicily was privatized.
So a cholera epidemic killed 70,000 Sicilians in 1837. And along with the violence and corruption of the Bourbon police, the dominance of Naples, the lack of political autonomy, the rise in poverty and crime rates, the island revolted in 1848. The revolution here was organized mainly from Palermo and the early mafia clans joined this rebellion. The Bourbon regime suppressed the uprising, but their methods shocked and appalled a lot of onlookers. See, they massacred civilians and bombarded cities indiscriminately. And then Bourbon troops would rape women and children who were taking shelter in churches. They looted homes and businesses. They tortured rebels before dumping their bodies in the streets as a warning. And they even managed to cause a something of a diplomatic crisis with the British because We'll get into this more in the next episode, but Britain had a lot of money tied up in Sicily, particularly around the lemon groves, you know, the citrus fruit industry and the sulfur mining industry as well. That meant that a lot of British elites lived in Sicily. So they were left, well, not all of them, but some of them were left destitute by the Bourbon regime's suppression of the uprising. And this caused additional headaches then for Naples. Now, the seething hatred of the Bourbon regime, that this wildly over-the-top response to the uprising engendered among Sicilians is indescribable. But it took place in context of broader revolts across Europe. So although the Bourbons had suppressed the rebellion, in effect, it had marked the beginning of the end of their regime. Now, after Giuseppe Garibaldi conquered Sicily in 1860 with his famous red shirts, he brought an end to the kingdom of the two Sicilies and he united the island with Italy. And Sicily at this point was virtually a free-for-all of competing armed gangs and bandits and landlords and cops and politicians. Additionally, the peasants thought that Garibaldi would back them in their claim for possession of the land. They thought that there was a chance that he might distribute land to them, but he didn't. He actually sided with the landowners. So right at the beginning of the Italian state, Sicilians already had a kind of ominous foreshadowing of what the relationship with the new government would look like in the decades to come. And because of Sicily's numerous problems, The new state of Italy, which is supposed to hold what the sociologist Leopoldo Franchetti has called a monopoly on violence. And this is, you know, the right to apply force in order to compel a private citizen to behave a certain way. Well, they found themselves completely overwhelmed by the job of governing Sicily. Beyond the crime rate and the political upheaval, many Sicilians felt resentfully signed up to the Italian project. And this divide between the North and the South was exacerbated by a series of national governments who generally treated the Southern regions with complete contempt. And during this period, post-1860, there were never more than 400 police officers to patrol the entire island, and most of that number were either hopelessly corrupt or incompetent or some combination of the two, and the rest were unable to do their jobs without being targeted for assassination. The magistrates and judges were also thoroughly corrupted. Uh, They would sell verdicts to whoever could pay the most, and they would shut down investigations uh, depending on who might be at risk of being sent down, you know. So here I think 
we now have a pretty good idea of of Sicilian society at this time. And basically, you have a society here where you can only really turn to the local mafia bosses um, because they're the only ones with sufficient influence to co-sign business deals, protect property, and generally ensure that both the legal and illegal markets function in a profitable and relatively stable way. So the early years of Italian unification also set a template for the tortured relationship between the northern government and the island of Sicily. Now at the time, Italy was ruled by a government called the Right, and they wanted to bring southern Italy under tighter central control. The local business and political leaders in Sicily wanted the island to have much more autonomy. It was in this environment that an especially strange and disturbing crime occurred in 1862, and it was one that would suggest there was already a very close relationship between Sicilian street criminals and the ruling class of the island. And it would also prove to be an eerie anticipation in many ways of the Strategia della Tensione, or the strategy of tension that would be adopted during the years of lead. So just after dark on October the 1st, 1862, 12 men in hooded cloaks knifed 12 randomly selected citizens across Palermo in a tightly coordinated operation. Now, all but one of the victims survived, and the police arrested a shoeshine, and he confessed to his participation and named his 11 co-conspirators. And after the police rounded them up, all of them admitted that they'd been paid 500 lire to carry out the operation. The case captured public interest, and the judge issued death sentences to three of the stabbers, and he gave hard labor to the rest. But there was disbelief that the courts had made no effort to investigate who funded these attacks. One of the attackers, though, said that a prominent local nobleman called Sant Elia had financed the operation. And Sant Elia was the head of a local Masonic lodge, and he had very powerful friends in the new national government. So the authorities immediately moved to shut down the investigation. And while the knife attacks continued at random, the police made no progress in solving who was behind them. The king, then, made a point of choosing San Elia to represent him at the Palermo Easter celebrations in 1863. Now, there are theories about what was really going on here, but the most common seems to be that elements in Sicily's ruling class had planned the conspiracy to convince the Italian government that more power and autonomy needed to be given to them, that only they had what it took to deal with the island's problems. An insurrectionary fervor spread as the state tried to impose itself through harsher and harsher means, and the government finally declared martial law in 1866 after another revolt in Palermo. And the shape that this revolt took is quite interesting. You see, during the uprising of 1848, the mafia had joined the mob due to its hatred of the Bourbon police. Revolutionary activity gave it very good cover to access police stations, kill informers and cops, and destroy police records in all the chaos. 1848 was a most violent year, even by Sicily standards. But by the 1860s, after the chaos and instability of the previous decades, the mafia had come to be viewed by the peasants as a necessary institution for maintaining social order. 
a character that we'll be discussing in more detail in future episodes, Baron Torisi Colonna, where he wrote a very astute and thoughtful pamphlet about the security situation in Sicily in 1864. Quote, We should not delude ourselves anymore. In Sicily, there is a sect of thieves that has ties across the whole island. The sect protects and is protected by everyone who has to live in the countryside, like the leaseholding farmers and herdsmen. It gives protection to and gets help from traders. The police hold little or no fear for the sect because it is confident that it will have no trouble in slipping away from any police hunt. The courts also hold little fear for the sect. It takes pride in the fact that evidence for the prosecution is rarely produced because of the pressure that it puts on witnesses. Antonio Staraba, who was the mayor of Palermo in 1866, he noticed something very interesting about this uprising. You see, whereas in 1848, the rioting crowds had looted shops and other businesses, this time they targeted banks, government offices and carabinieri barracks. Straba said, quote, The organizers were not representatives of political factions. They were groups of gangs who had begun to act in agreement with one another, like a kind of government. And this was not just a riot. It was an assault against the state itself. So from this, we can perhaps conclude that the purpose of the Mafia's participation in the 1866 uprising was to demonstrate its supreme control of the island, not just to commit, you know, some opportunistic assassinations and robberies. The point was to demonstrate that it was a viable rival power to the state, that it had considerable influence over the mass of Sicilians, but that it was also willing to reach an accommodation. So here's John Dickey. Quote, the condition of Sicily only seemed to worsen after it became part of Italy in 1860. The right governments faced even graver problems imposing order here than they did in the rest of the south. A good proportion of Sicily's political class favoured autonomy within the Kingdom of Italy, but the right was highly reluctant to grant that autonomy. How could Sicily govern its own affairs, the right reasoned, when the political landscape was filled with a parade of folk demons? A reactionary clergy who were nostalgic for the Bourbon kings, revolutionaries who wanted a republic and were prepared to ally themselves with outlaws in order to achieve it, local political cliques who stole, murdered and kidnapped their way to power. So in the resulting void that's created by a weak government unable to impose order, the mafia offered itself as what was called an instrument of local government. The Italian state would deal with Sicily and the broader problems of the South by continually lurching through cycles of indifference, incompetence, collaboration with the mafia to co-manage political administration, and occasionally they would fall back on brutal repression, as in 1866, before starting the cycle all over again. And throughout all of this, the mafia would continue to patiently extend its influence deeper and deeper into the Italian political system, to the point where it became difficult to tell where the mafia ended and the state began. Next month on Books of War, we are going to look at how the mafia consolidated its power, and from there, how it fully entered the Italian political system.
Now, this was enabled in large part by its control of the citrus groves around Palermo and the access that this gave it to the state. Thanks to the account of a certain Dr. Galati, we'll be able to explore in detail the Mafia's organizational principles and its early methods, as well as meet some of the first Mafia dons. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>